It's approaching us at breakneck speed. Can I call it warp speed? Well, anyway, beyond that, <laughs> welcome everyone to the Rebel Madman Radio program. And I, you know, it's uh, really great to have uh, my two friends with me tonight. And we've done a lot of radio programs together. And it is just an absolute pleasure. Uh, and they were both okay knowing that on Sunday night I have a program called The Rebel and the Renegades. And neither one of these two guys had a problem at all with me calling this program The Rebel and the Reprobates. So, anyway, uh, that's that's kind of where we are. But, uh, folks, uh, first and foremost, if there is any way possible that you can... Please support Republic Broadcasting Network. Go to the website, republicbroadcasting.org. Hit that donate button. Help us out. Help us to keep free speech out there for the people. You know, when you make a donation to RBN, you're not just helping yourself to be able. You're helping a lot of other people, some of whom can't afford it. But we've got to stand up for all of them. So anyway, let me introduce my guys tonight, and starting from way out there in Arizona, it would be none other than the infamous Cal Robbins. How are you, buddy? I don't know about infamous, but yeah. Thanks for thanks for inviting me on the show again tonight, Mike. I truly appreciate it, and it's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the, be on the air with you. So thank you. And DW, well, one. Just so everybody knows, I'm Retrobate 2, DW happens to be Retrobate 1, and Mike Rebel is Rebel Flight Leader. <laughs> well, I'm glad you told everyone that, and thanks for that. And now we'll uh, uh, slip, slip down on to Alabama, and we're going to talk to uh, that none other than that retired commercial airline pilot and avid reader, none other than the... Claymore himself. DW, how are you? Hey, guys. I'm doing great. It's beautiful here. Uh, what a glorious, uh, it's like spring. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it's good to hang out with my other retrobates on a, on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, always a pleasure to be with you and Cal. So, this is going to be a marathon today, isn't it? Oh, yeah, buddy. I tell you what, you guys usually jump in the last hour, and now I am torturing you both by asking you to come on for the first two as well as the third hour. And I wanted to cover a subject, and I know uh, between the three of us, we have talked about this on a multitude of occasions. But I think I was probably, you know, doing my own research years after high school and college, before I realized that Patrick Henry knew more than seven words. Because that's all I'd ever been told he ever said was, give me liberty or give me death. And no one ever alluded to the fact that he drastically and emphatically opposed the Constitution. Didn't want anything to do with it. Wouldn't even attend the convention. Said he smelled something... He, well, he smelled a rat leaning toward a monarchy in Philadelphia. If there are ever any more truthful words than that, I have no clue what they could be. But, you know, again, I wasn't taught that either. But then, guys, I came upon a quote of his, 
And then I tried to put that into correlation with all of the study and all of the other stuff that all three of us have done. And the, these, I want to read these words slowly so that they kind of sink in, I hope. Not for you guys. You guys know them, but for maybe the listeners. And this is what Patrick Henry said. And I didn't realize how profound a statement this was for several years after I first read it. And then when you start to put the pieces together and you jump down a few more rabbi holes, you begin to understand where he was coming from with this. So if you don't mind, guys, I will read that quote in its entirety, but slowly. And I quote, Those who have no similar interest with the people of the South are to legislate for us. Our dearest rights are to be put in the hands of those whose advantage it will be to infringe them. They will rule by patronage and sword. The states are committing suicide. Unquote. Well, Cal, what are your thoughts on that Patrick Henry quote? Well, he's spot on 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 his... uh prophecy there because that's what exactly what the state standards commit suicide they surrendered their sovereignty by ratifying to the constitution that's plain and simple well did the people actually surrender or was it those that the federalists chose for them in the conventions well, but yeah, it would be those who chose it for them in the conventions. Once you dig deep enough and understand how the conventions were also rigged by the Federalists, um, I'm pretty sure the common Virginia man, the the, the farmer, the yeoman, uh, if they knew about what was going on, they were pretty much opposed to it. Well, I think the only state that actually put it to a popular vote was Rhode Island, and it was overwhelmingly defeated. Of course, we aren't taught that either. But here is, I kind of made a posit, I think, Cal, you commented on it on Facebook, is I made the posit that the reason for the, what we are called inappropriately, the Civil War, what we had in 1860 was, in effect, a rehash of what we had in 1787. Now, we had a group of men who had uh, been in charge of the government. Of course, we'd have to go into Robert Morris to really understand this and his people. But we had a group of people in the North who had embezzled this country out of millions of dollars during the Revolutionary War. And they had this money. And not only that, but they had created their own bank called the Bank of North America, And these people were stockholders in that bank. And a lot of the money that Robert Morris had embezzled out of the U.S. Treasury, he put into his own company called Willing & Morris. And then he sold supplies to the U.S. government, war supplies from his company, which he was allowed to do. But Mr. Morris, you know, he was quite the character. But. He, most of the stockholders in this bank, the great majority, I think there were two in Charleston, South Carolina. The rest of them were all up north. And uh, But anyway, before we jump into that with both feet, uh, D.W., what are your thoughts on uh, Mr. Patrick Henry's quote there? 
Well, uh, let's see. Let's let me ask a couple questions about Patrick Henry. Uh, he uh, he was he was Christian, correct? Uh, he according according to his uh, fellow founders, he was the most devout Christian among them. Go okay. ahead, sir. Well, I'm sure that in, that informed a lot of his perspective. Uh, let's see. Next thing, he was a lawyer. That's correct too, wasn't he? He was uh, very, he, very successful. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And let me see. What's the next one here? It might be relevant. Uh, oh yeah, he uh, he was a legislator, wasn't he? And a governor. Yep. Yep. So. Uh, you know, sort of taking that that group of uh, uh, factoids there, uh, Patrick Henry probably knew something about positive law, didn't he? Absolutely. Oh, well. So, under positive law, this is legislative law, this is the law that reaches out and touches you, this is the man-made law. He uh, he was fully aware that a a centralized a centralized uh, command government would impose its positive laws on its subjects. Uh, one way to look at it that they would exercise that authority of uh, kind of a silly word for men to use sovereignty <laughs> that's a so, sovereign sovereignty is a divine power uh, so using using this pretense of sovereignty sovereignness and their ability to affect man-made positive laws uh, I think this is, and, and Patrick Henry fully well understanding how that works. Uh, I, I think that was a a harbinger, a foreboding for what would ultimately come out of it. Mike, Cal. Well, I could not agree more. And uh, folks, I don't think, <clears throat> pardon me, that the majority of Americans in any way know and probably about 300 million of them don't give a damn, uh, that the majority of stockholders or debt holders, let's call them debt holders, in the, uh, against the U.S. government were located in the north, as were the majority of land speculators. Now, again, most this isn't taught in school, so you, you really have to contemplate this. The northern states, especially New England, were landlocked. There was no way they could increase their size or increase their revenue within their states by bringing in more territory. And they looked at the south, and this was really scary for them. Because how many people know that the... uh, state of Virginia at that time was not only just 
Virginia as we know it today, but it was Virginia, Kentucky, and it was also the southern parts of Ohio, Illinois, and Indiana. That was a lot of land, and these land speculators couldn't believe for a moment that someone could be in control of that and they would be left out of being able to speculate on all of those millions of acres of land. They also looked at Georgia, and at that time, most people are unaware that Georgia went from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi River. Georgia at that time was Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama. And these land speculators knew that if the Southerners were able to control this land that they had and to bring in other states, that they would be not only outvoted in any move through the Articles of Confederation, but they would, in essence, become little more than a vote. And they couldn't tolerate this. They couldn't allow this to happen. Cal, you like to elaborate on that a little bit for me, buddy? Well, it wasn't just the northern states. If you go prior to that, the crown realized the same thing. Is and that's why the crown shut off settlement in those western lands. The yes, and most, same, most the crown saw the same thing that the northern states were seeing. So, so the northern states just picked up where the crown lost out of after the revolution. Well, I've always believed, and I still believe to this day, that the northern politicians were just an extension of the crown anyway, and I think we yes. can prove that. And so when uh, we know that what really turned these monarchists who call themselves Federalists, we know that what really turned them uh, and put them in league with the people who were fighting for their liberty who put them in league with them as opposed to be still being with King George, is when King George forbade any land speculation beyond the Appalachians or beyond the Alleghenies. And that really got to Washington because Washington had been, George Washington had been speculating on that land in the Ohio Company, and they had something like 3 million acres. So suddenly the edict from King George took away three million acres and they couldn't allow that to happen so they had to side with those who thought they were fighting for their freedom and their liberty dw your thoughts yeah uh, well uh, this this puts a whole new perspective on uh, motivations in the run-up to the American Revolution and the uh, the behavior of, of different groups of men afterwards. Uh, you know, there's a couple of things there that are I find interesting, you know, you guys are talking about. One of them is the, uh, this, uh, I don't know if you could call it greed, I suppose you could, but this uh, inherent nature in in some men and women, but in this case, men, to uh, want what somebody else has. And, and uh, there's two words that come to mind. One of them is uh, jealousy, 
Now, you, you might say that you might put it in, you know, terms for the, you know, common language is that they were they were jealous of what the South had control of. Or you could say they were envious. A jealousy is when a man sees something that somebody else has and he wants something like that too. And envy is when you want exactly what he has. Now, if, if you're jealous, you can go out and get your own, maybe. And if you're envious, you got to take his away. And these these were these were men who of an aristocratic class weren't used to having anybody say no to them. They were they were the wealthy and well born uh, before the Revolutionary War. They they were of a a higher caste, and, and uh, you know I pull out a little quote from uh, if I can remember it here from uh, Thomas Paine's book Common Sense, where he described the nature of man. I I mean. It, I can understand how we can look at these people as, you know, historical figures and politicians and and all this sort of thing. But I, if I just look at them as just, just men, Thomas Paine describes that the nature of man is to be ambitious, vindictive, and rapacious. And, uh, you know, the... The real documents of history that uh, that you found, Mike and Cal, and the different ones that we found, and their own writings indicate that that's exactly what they their nature was. And um, I, I think I think you have to understand the basic that their inherent motivations as an aristocratic, wealthy, and well-born class caste in many ways are no different than the men and the politicians today. They just a different time and different technology and tools, but those same motivators are still there. So that's my point. Well stated, buddy. Uh, Well stated. And also one of the things that I was never taught in school or, you know, the Marxist indoctrination centers, I wasn't taught was that the majority of the debt in the latter part of the Revolutionary War fell with the southern states because the majority of battles in the last three years of the war were fought in the south, not in the north. So the southern states had accumulated this debt that they themselves said, okay, in 1785, the war's over. And these southern states say, okay, well, you know, yes, that is true. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to create our own currency, which has, we're going to issue our own paper money, which has no species backing, but can be used to pay off these debts. Well, as soon as the southern states began to do this, those wonderful monarchist federalist founders begin to panic 
Well, we want to be paid in specie. We want to be paid in gold and silver for the debts that we hold against the United States. We want to be paid in hard money. And we're not going to accept you southern states when you issue paper money that has no backing to it. In other words, it has no interest on the debt which they wanted to be paid. So suddenly you've got southern states and you've got some northern states as well who said, okay, we will do that. But then, gentlemen, there is something else that was happening right after the war. And this was becoming a real problem for those who wanted to control the government. And that was that not only were they issuing this paper money, but also there was no way for them to collect what they believed was due to them from the southern states because they couldn't annex those southern states. They couldn't tell the southern states, you've got to pay us our money. And under the Articles of Confederation, that's what they would have had to do. So the way that they could get everyone to pay their money to them as they felt they wanted or that they felt they deserved was to create a centralized government that could force every state to pay them this interest. Now, ironically, when it came to Constitution time, Article 6, Clause 1, these wonderful Federalist founders put into the Constitution that only the debts owed by the United States were valid. There is nothing in there that says also that the debts owed to the United States are valid because these debt holders, these land speculators, owed the U.S. government millions of dollars. So they put a provision into the Constitution that as soon as the Constitution was ratified, their debt was paid. Your comments, Cal? Well, another thing that's important to note is to realize there were two debts back then. One was the foreign debt, and the other was the domestic debt owed to Robert Morris and the Bank of North America. Um, the foreign debt was being paid completely. It wasn't paid off, but there were installments to pay with the interest, and those payments were being made completely. It was this domestic debt owed to these people who were part of the revolution, supposedly. And the states are going, wait a minute, we can't afford to pay all this all at once. We'll pay this foreign debt, but we're going to take a little bit of time on paying any so-called debt to you guys. In fact, we're not quite sure there's a debt at all. We want a full accounting of it. And so that's where they really started. That put Morris in a big point because they had to make up stuff. To try oh, and use this debt they said they were owed. But ab absolutely. Absolutely, Cal. Debt was paid up to date. It wasn't paid off, but it was paid to date. They had no problem paying the foreign debt at all. The money's owed back to France and to the, the to uh Holland. They had no problem paying that debt off at all. Okay. Cal, it, I, I mean I, could, I go just ahead, buddy. Something out 
Um, when you look at this, you understand that it's about land and control of assets and resources. And you look at, you know, before the war, how it was about that, why the aristocracy of the United States went to war because of that. You look at after the war, you look at the expansion of the United States all the way through Manifest Destiny. You bring it all the way up to today and you look at how many bases that the United States has, military bases around the world. It hasn't changed at all, Mike. It's still going on. Why do you think there's so many bases all around the world? They're controlling the resources of the world. And also also uh, to accumulate debt, Cal. Let's not forget that. We're accumulating a hell of a debt for this as well. Yeah, it's a form of slavery. It's a form of control, yes. Yes. The debt is more important than the money. They, the, the banksters, the people who this debt is supposedly owed to, they can print up whatever they want at any time they want. There's no shortage of money for them. It's not about that. It's about the control through debt. It's about enslaving not just the people of the United States, but all of humanity to them. Well stated. DW, your thoughts? Well, uh, yeah, so uh, if we go back to that that constitutional period and the run-up to it and the motivators, the, uh, <clears throat> I mean, it's you can build a fairly simple flow sheet that illustrates that they want to use the principle of OPM, other people's money. And uh, – <laughs> This is uh, basically they they want to profit and benefit from actually a uh, political construct that's actually socialist. Big time. I I think uh, I think I actually have to say that and point that out because I think that might slip by a lot of people. This is uh, this is. Um, uh, redistribution of wealth of <laughs> of uh, you know wealth resources time talent energy human human energy uh, productivity in the lives time of men and they they want to extract that now uh, they're really upset because the, the form the, the way they want to extract that is in a uh, specie and they want the usury on top of it. So uh, even though they're, they're socialists or they, they believe everybody should share, they believe they have a, a, uh, a greater share and that return to them. See, they want it both ways. They, they want, they want uh, revenue sharing, but that they want to profit from the revenue sharing in usury which means that um, there's there's two sets of values going on here. There's a contradiction. We have a we have we have a contradiction going on. Some we we either don't have enough information or somebody's lying, Mike. So uh, well, big time breaks coming up uh, within about thirty seconds. So close us off here for this uh, segment, DW. Well, I'll. Uh, I, I I don't know what else to add to that right there. It's just you know I'm just I'm just pointing out the contradictions of this mic, and I think Patrick Henry saw him too. All right, buddy. Here comes the music. We'll be back with you on the flip side, folks. 
support RBN. Thank you. Listening to Republic Broadcasting Network. Real news, real talk, real people. Because you can handle the truth. Have you been looking for a trusted long term storable food company? We have a solution for you. Simply Clean Foods is dedicated to providing the best quality food you can buy next to fresh from a farmer's market. Our line of resealable fruits, vegetables, and meats are suitable for everyday use, and you won't have to worry about throwing away valuable groceries ever again. Our food is completely GMO-free, and our stringent quality controls, plus testing for heavy metals, makes us unique in the storable foods market. Simply Clean Foods' primary focus is to bring clean food to people all around the world and change the way we look at freeze-dried food in our daily cooking. When you purchase from Simply Clean Foods, not only will you be receiving high-quality food, but you will also be supporting veterans in need across the country and those who are affected by natural disasters. Go to republicbroadcasting.org and click on Long-Term Food Storage in the rotating sponsors' banners to support RBN. Simply Clean Foods. Do it today. Did you know the IRS publicly admits that income tax is collected by voluntary compliance? Get the information you need to help you avoid income tax with these five easy steps. All you have to do is go to avoidincometax.com to get your five easy steps on how to avoid the IRS income tax. Escape the IRS. Let avoidincometax.com help you. We guarantee our five easy steps or your money back. Go to avoidincometax.com. Attention, freedom-loving patriots. Are you ready to dive deep into the principles that founded our great nation? Join me, Peter Serafine, and the Institute on the Constitution as we light the way to a brighter future with the Liberty Lighthouse Classroom. At liberty-lighthouse.com slash classroom, you'll find a treasure trove of online courses on the U.S. Constitution, carefully crafted to empower you with knowledge to defend your rights and liberty, whether you're a student, a history enthusiast, or just a concerned citizen. These courses are for you. Gain a comprehensive understanding of our Constitution's principles, the wisdom of our founding fathers, and how to apply them in today's world. As a special offer to our freedom-loving listeners of Republic Broadcasting Network, use coupon code RBN at checkout and get 20% discount on any course. Join the Liberty Lighthouse Classroom and be a part of the movement to uphold the values that have made our nation exceptional. Unleash the power of knowledge and protect what truly matters, our Constitution. Visit liberty-lighthouse.com slash classroom today. Don't miss this incredible opportunity. Use code RBN for 20% off. Together, we'll be the beacon of freedom our founding generation envisioned. Liberty Lighthouse Classroom. Illuminating minds, empowering patriots. Walk straight in there 
foot against the grain But I kept my peace of mind No, folks, I wouldn't have it any other way. That's why I'm the rebel madman, and you're listening to RBN, the Republic Broadcasting Network, with the Rebel Madman Radio Program. And we have today uh, my two uh, honored guests, uh, DW and Cal, and we were kind of talking during the break there and uh, wondering a couple of questions. But uh, I kind of wanted, uh, I kind of asked them a question there, so I'm going to. Uh, turn it over to let's start with dw and see if you can answer the questions that i asked during the break buddy well why don't you uh why don't you ask that again so they can (laughs) the audience can hear the question (laughs) well let's start backwards let's start backwards let's let's uh, uh backwards from what i asked uh when it came to all of this uh financial embezzlement and all of the schemes and everything even alexander hamilton referred to what they were doing as a scheme i i you know if you don't read these original documents folks you aren't going to know anything and patrick henry wrote to you know uh rufus king and he said i need to get back to philadelphia he was in new york at the time he said i need to get back to philadelphia so we can complete our scheme I don't know what else what else these people need, but uh, just give me your thoughts, please, D.W. Why do you think that the good old uh, anti-federalist Samuel Bryan writing as Sentinel, why do you think he, among all of the anti-federalists, even Patrick Henry, that I can find, never mentioned the financial morass that these people were putting, you know, except for the fact that the states were committing suicide? Why do you see that Samuel Bryan as Sentinel was the only one to really catch on to the extent of this financial fraud, D.W.? Well, uh, you know, like we were talking during the break, and I I think Cal probably had the best answer, you know, and uh, which is uh, he was Samuel Bryan, uh, Sentinel. Some people say Montezuma uh, uh, was – was in Philadelphia, and his his father before him, or his father was alive during that time, was also a well-known um, uh, politician. And uh, was he a lawyer too? His, Samuel Bryan's father. Uh, actually, he was judge. So, judge. So, uh, as as far as the Philadelphia area goes, where <clears throat> which is central to the plot, Philadelphia. Uh, it, it's not Washington. It's not New York. The the central location, geographic location to the plot, and and Alexander Hamilton's schemes off Philadelphia. And uh, so I I'd have to. I don't want to take away from what Cal's got to say, but I I agree with him. Uh, he's Samuel Bryan has contacts and is connected and has uh, experienced and witnessed things in Philadelphia that gives him insight into the to the real motivations of this uh, cast of characters. So, oh, well stated. Well stated. And, you know, let's, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to hear what Cal's got to say. Come on, Cal, tell us, buddy. 
Cal, mute button. Oh, what's happened to Cal? Oh, there he is. I one too many times. Samuel Bryant was in Philadelphia. Um, he was there before, during, and after the war. He witnessed firsthand Robert Morris's rise from rags to riches. While everybody else suffered through the war, somehow Robert Morris got fantastically wealthy. How else could you do that? But profiting from the war, stealing money from the war. I mean, he saw it firsthand. And so he wrote about it. Well, I think that is uh, spot on. I think it's correct. He was right there in it. And Cal, do you think, I remember, gosh, it's been a few years ago, to get the first 24 essays of Sentinel, if you went to Amazon, would cost you between eight and 900 bucks. You think there was a method to their madness with that? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, hide the truth from people. Make it, make it too expensive to find. It's just, you know, hiding information from people. Nobody would pay $600 for, you know, to read essays from Samuel Bryan when most people don't even know who Samuel Bryan was. So, exactly. 600 bucks on it, you know? Exactly. Well, the southern states, at least Patrick Henry and, uh, you know, Richard Henry Lee saw it as well. So did William Grayson and a few other anti-federalists. They saw this all coming. And so the two points here, and I want to address these two points. Number one, in the north, we had these land speculators who were investing money into land west of the Alleghenies and the Appalachians. And they couldn't bear to think that if Virginia remained a single state with the expansion possibilities of expanding all the way into Kentucky, into southern Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, these Federalists could not even begin to imagine the power that the state of Virginia would wield in any government with that kind of territory, with that kind of ability to split up into different states. And they knew without a shadow of a doubt that, number one, is they couldn't profit from any land speculation in those areas. And number two, they knew that they could not collect or force Virginia to pay taxes to pay off the interest in the money that they had stolen. Imagine that. You steal money and it's invested and you get to profit from the interest off of those debts. And you can demand, if you are in control of government, you can demand that your debts be paid in specie. Hard money. Not paper money. Hard money. So how would you describe the panic of these uh, folks, DW, they started in 1785, right when all of this was beginning. They started with a meeting at Mount Vernon with Washington, and they said, which was led by, again, James Madison. And so what they were doing, you know, they had this wonderful meeting. Oh, we can't allow this to happen. We can't allow this. Even though this this meeting was held in Virginia, in essence, it was an anti-Southern meeting. 
And then, of course, they tried again in 1786 in Annapolis, Maryland, with the Annapolis Convention, and only five states showed up. And that's when both Alexander Hamilton and James Madison got together, checked their letters, folks, and they decided that if we're going to make this scheme of ours work, George Washington has to be involved. I mean, we had a convention in Maryland, and even Maryland didn't send any delegates to that convention. So our only answer is to have Washington join us. And then they both started sending letters to Washington. And Washington at first was reluctant to even bother in it. And he said, look, I've got a meeting of the Order of the Cincinnati that's scheduled for the same date. I'm not going to be able to make that. My first allegiance is to the Order of the Cincinnati. I'm not going to be able to do that. And in one letter, James Madison even asked him, well, if you're not going to be there, is it okay if we advertise that you are? Now, there, there was only one reason for that, and that was to give authenticity to what they were doing, and they felt like that uh, Washington was the one person who could do that for them, and he did. Because I believe, folks, if Washington had not attended that convention in Philadelphia, and, you know, I think also at this time we have to throw in, folks, is that all seven delegates, the actual chosen delegates from Pennsylvania, were all from Philadelphia. Now, what about the western part of Philadelphia? I mean, Pennsylvania. What about the western part? All those farmers and other people out there working, trying to make a living for them and their families trying to put food on the table and a roof over their house. Did they have a delegate at the Constitutional Convention? No. And then the Pennsylvania Assembly in October of 1787 stated publicly that these seven delegates exceeded their authority and therefore they were not acting for the state of Pennsylvania. They were acting on their own. Now, I don't know how much more it takes for a person with just a reasonable amount of intelligence to figure this out. Cal, help me out here, buddy. Well, yeah, the, the Federalists, they needed Washington. They needed his name. They needed that name recognition, that call it gravitas, I guess you would call it. Once they had that, they knew that no matter what Washington said, people would follow what he said to do because he was, I guess, the rock star of that age. Everybody knew who George Washington was. Everybody. Not just people in the United States. Everybody. Pretty much in any of the civilized world at that point knew who Washington was. But then they have it in Philadelphia, and it's important to note that, yeah, they've got the gravitas of Washington, but then they get this cherry on top of this unelected delegate from Philadelphia to also attend, who's probably maybe one of the top five people known in the world at that time as well, another rock star worldwide, and that would be Benjamin Franklin, who attended that convention without any invitation to that convention. And so they had those two names, those two names, and relied on those two names. You can see it in their writings. They relied on those two names. You can see it in the anti-Federalist writings and saying people don't rely on just namesake. 
Consider what's actually being done, not what these people are saying. Consider what is actually being requested of you. They're requesting of you to give up your sovereignty. They're requesting of you to be able to have this government tax you at their will. Doesn't matter what Washington says. Doesn't matter what if he Washington says, oh, no, no, we'll never do it. That's not what this Constitution says. You have to go by the Constitution and not by Washington, not by Franklin's name. So, but there's a master stroke on the Federalist part to have both Washington and Benjamin Franklin at that convention. It was a master oh, absolutely. stroke. <laughs> absolutely, buddy. Great point. And that was exactly true. And the fact that, uh, as you mentioned, Benjamin Franklin was there. He's mentioned so many times, oh, it's a republic, if you can keep it. Oh, we need daily prayer. All this other stuff that he said, you know, that is quoted so often by so many people. And the fact was, he was not an official delegate. He wasn't chosen by anyone to be there. He just freaking showed up. But we aren't taught that in school, are we, D.W.? Well, as a matter of fact, we're taught just the opposite. Uh, I uh, I was snooping around last week and came across a little half-hour video on, uh, you know, some YouTube thing here. Some guy calls him uh, himself a history professor, and, well, that's okay. And it, the topic was Benjamin Franklin, and... Uh, he goes into some detail on this uh, historical YouTube video about how Benjamin Franklin was a a delegate from Philadelphia to the Constitutional Convention, and he must have said this six times. Now, when you, you got some guy that you don't know <laughs> telling you in this official-looking video, citing facts that. Uh, Benjamin Franklin is a, is a delegate. Uh, that's highly suggestible that most people, ever heard, having heard the contrary, would believe it, wouldn't they, Mike? Oh yes. Why not? Oh, okay, so all of a sudden now, uh, despite the documentable source document evidence. Uh, unrebuttable evidence that Benjamin Franklin was not a delegate. He was, uh, uh, maybe he was just a friend of the court, I guess. Huh? And, and this gives him a, a, some sort of officious capacity that he didn't have. As a matter of fact, I, I, it's apparent to me that these people that conspired to do this ascribed to themselves officious capacities that they didn't have. And and part of my reasoning with that is that if you if you look at the letters like like you did you have and you you and you have in your possession and and this is also you can look at other sources uh, that present the same information uh, that we're talking about um, the people that and I'm going to use the word conspired conspired from 84 forward in their own personal letters to bring about this meeting uh, I guess you call it a convention were all 
all of them that I'm aware of. So I want you, Cal, to correct me because I might have something wrong here. All of them that conspired to do it. Uh, when it came time to identify themselves would have fell into the category of a federalist. That there were Absolutely. no anti, there were no anti-federalists that were a part of the conceptual conversation to uh, abrogate, subvert, uh, and do a constitutional contractual coup d'etat on the Articles of Confederation for the Perpetual Union, which carried them through the, the war union. There, there was none, there, there were no anti-federalist privilege to that conversation. That in itself, in my mind, meets the criteria for a conspiracy. Well, absolutely, D.W., and I couldn't agree with you more. I noticed uh, Cal dropped off. I hope he can reconnect. But anyway, what I wanted to do for any doubting Thomases out there about the Pennsylvania legislature or the Pennsylvania Assembly, as it was known at that time, I want to read you directly from their document. And here it is. Be it enacted, and it is hereby enacted by the representatives of the free men of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in general assembly met, and by authority of the same, that Thomas Mifflin, Robert Morris, George Clymer, Jared Ingersoll, Thomas Fitzsimmons, James Wilson, and Gouverneur Morris Esquires. Oh, they were all lawyers. Imagine that. Are hereby appointed deputies from this state to meet in the convention of the deputies of the respective states of North America to be held at the city of Philadelphia on the second day of the month of May next. And the said Thomas Mifflin, Robert Morris, George Clymer, Jared Ingersoll, Thomas Fitzsimmons, James Wilson, and Gouverneur Morris Esquires, or any four of them, pardon me, I kind of... Uh, Drop my phone there, are hereby constituted and appointed deputies from this state with powers to meet such deputies as may be appointed and authorized by the other states to assemble in the said convention at the city aforesaid and to join with them in devising, deliberating on, and discussing all such alterations and future provisions as may be necessary to render, render the federal constitution fully adequate to the exigencies of the union and in reporting such act or fact for that purpose to the United States in Congress assembled. Doesn't say anything about conventions, does it? As when agreed to by them and duly confirmed by the several states will effectually provide for the same. You will therefore perceive that they had no authority whatsoever from the legislature to annihilate the present Articles of Confederation and to form a constitution entirely new. And in doing which they have acted and in doing so, which they have acted as mere individuals, not as the official deputies of this commonwealth. 
So there it is, folks, unquote. It states it very simply. Does it not, DW? I, I think I think even with the old older English pronunciations and language grammar, I think that should be perfectly clear to anybody with a high school diploma. <laughs> I think that I, I think just a little bit of effort with that that uh, excerpt would uh, make it perfectly clear. It, so, so how could it how could it have been done and not been a crime? Well, you you could have proffered the idea, and uh, from my uh, understanding, all this would have had to have been authorized and uh, uh, initiated in Congress assembled itself in the article under the current Articles of Confederation. It had to have been uh, initiated at that point and not from the states themselves. Absolutely. this uh, That's uh, uh, quite the observation. And, and it has to be known that here even the legislature of the people of the state of Pennsylvania said that they had no authorization whatsoever to create a new constitution. Every state told them that. The state of Delaware said, do not agree to anything that does away with the one state, one vote that we have in the Articles of Confederation. And yet the delegates from Delaware did it anyway. And people really look at me with the strangest look when I tell them this was a criminal conspiracy. The Constitution was a criminal conspiracy. I don't care how many conventions ratified it. It does not absolve it from being a crime because they violated the law of the day. Very simply. I see we got our buddy Cal back. Uh, Cal, your comments, please, sir. Reprobate two, reprobate two. You there? There he is. <laughs> there I are. There I am. Sorry, I missed. I, I missed a big chunk of that conversation. My phone decided to go kaput for a minute. Um, where were we at? We were talking about Philadelphia and uh, Benjamin Franklin and the delegates of the convention. If I believe, if I remember well, right. Cal, I read the official declaration while you were off there, and it's not fair to ask you to comment on something you couldn't hear. No, no, I read read it, so yeah. Okay, comment on it, please, sir. My comment on that is that's proof alone that, you know, I caught the tail end of this, that that this was a criminal conspiracy. This this Constitution wasn't criminal. Where'd you go, Cal? You still there? Well, Cal's having some phone problems. Jump in there and save my bacon, DW. Well, yeah, it's uh, uh, a constitutional conspiracy. Um, Criminal conspiracy. Well, let's let's look at it. Let's look at it this. Maybe maybe the there might be some listeners that are aware of this or not. But if you go to at, at the present day, right now, at this very moment. It, if you had a a real law library uh, in your town, city, 
you could go in there and you would go to the section that nobody ever goes to anymore. And uh, it's the old law, the statutes at large. And you would find a copy of the Declaration of Independence, which is the proclamation for the basis of a law. And then you would find the Articles of Confederation. And, and then you would find the Northwest uh, Ordinance. And then you would find uh, the Constitution. And the Articles of Confederation for the Perpetual Union are have not been nullified. They're still there, Mike. Yes, and we've got just a few uh, seconds here before the break comes in. And unfortunately, we've lost Cal. I hate he's having these technical difficulties. But here's the break with Freebird, and I dedicate this Freebird to Kathy Meskins. Go. People who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs. For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plant. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste for the price of a cup of coffee. Hemppaste.com slash RBN. Free shipping on orders over $50. See the banners for Hemp Paste at republicbroadcasting.org and visit hemppaste.com slash RBN. You're listening to Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Truth, truth, truth. 